itself is a collective, if you like, of a network of expertise and network of resources. And it really brings together a lot of people that do what we should do in this area of activism. It's very much spanning the gap between um, science and new development and techniques and new methods for satellite data, and then applying it to what we think we need to be doing now. So it's one of these great areas where we get to develop new things, you know, rather than just publish the paper and walk away, we get to actually see it work and, and get on the ships and see it work. So the Paul View Network is a whole bunch of people all around the world, uh, including the ICE services, which I got concentrated on, and weather centers, other experts, um, primarily in the Arctic, um, that do similar things and help develop it. So the material that you see this evening will be a collection of stuff. It's not all mine. And um, the methods are absolutely developed by the same group of, of uh, ingenious people around the world and how they go about it. So that's that's a bit of context for you and how some of the information is picked up on. So ships, ice, and satellites. I better clarify some of the things that we're going to talk about. And I should point out as well that I'm not speaking to Google. It's still not showing up here. So I'm winging this slightly. Um, so ships, what am I talking about? So I come from an organization that operates two ships currently. Um, these are they, uh, James Clark Ross and the Erna Shackle. And you may have heard in the um, news in the last hour or so about the fact that there's yet another ship um, who is working more or less alone. That can get generic names a bit by another name, <laughs> which will go nameless. Um, but that ship launched and um, gets wet for the first time um, in a month and bits time. Um, so we are an organization that operates ships and are very, very keen on making sure that they are that they are getting more science and they're talking about massive product launches. More, more on that later as well. What am I talking about? It's ice. So there's a whole range of different ice that I could be talking about, but I'm really referring to floating ice. So I'm not talking about uh, the ice that's up in the Antarctic continent, the ice sheet. I'm not talking about glaciers. Um, I'm not talking about snow and hail and that sort of ice. I'm talking about stuff that really floats in the ocean that might be sailing a ship toward. So icebergs, clearly um, a hazard of getting you know, too far back from them when they um, have havoc, the hazard they are to shipping. Um, one type of floating ice. But the other one, and, and really the one that dominates the activity that I'm going to talk about is sea ice. So this is when the sea itself gets cold enough to freeze. And um, that's about minus 1.8 centigrade starts to freeze, but it can vary in type, extent, and every parameter you can possibly think of. But the takeaway from this picture is it can get absolutely huge, and it's composed of multiple facets, big round ice flows that you can see there, um, flashy, turned over bits in between, um, and then the darker patches, which are really interesting, like the Pinkers and the Inuits. So it's a really complex, moving, dynamic environment that you you operate in, and it causes problems and ice shipping crises. So those are the two main types of ice that I'm going to talk about. Satellites. Um, there are a lot of satellites in orbit these days. 
hundreds, thousands of them probably, um, but I'm referring to when people um, have tried to measure the satellites that are in orbit looking down at their phones as some sort of instrument that's recording some tweets or so these are all orbiting at around 800 kilometers above us. They're not the GPS satellites, for instance, that are much further out and have their far sat-nav going, and they are not the telecommunications satellites that sit 36,000 kilometers out at the space station in the middle of the sky in orbit. So a particular branch of satellite, in actual fact, I'm going to concentrate on one particular one, but it's a particular pattern that is being I should mention polar science in the context of this picture and what polar science is at the World Bank to support. So there's a huge amount goes on, not just within proton orbit surveys, but um, it's a very, very international multidisciplinary effort. But the polar regions are hard places to do science. They are huge, um, no doubt. They are hostile, they are dark patterns, they are well over trenches. Temperatures um, plummet to minus 58, which makes it really hard. It, everything gets really, really difficult, really, really hard, really, really expensive um, to talk about. And therefore, it's a collaborative effort. And you'll find in both polar regions that that's true at the World Bank as well. So there are integrated science programs. And I'm not going to go into details of what science goes on there. I'd love to, I'd love to spend huge amount of time telling you about even the British Antarctic Survey Science Program um, and how it covers everything from deep earth geophysics all the way up through the ocean, ocean circulation, heat transport to the other parts of the planet, the living things in the oceans and their impact on the food webs and where you get your um, food in the evening, up onto the land, looking at the ice, the glaciers, the movements and changes from the sea ice and stem to the ice sheet and stem, um, then up into the atmosphere as well atmospheric chemistry, and right up into the upper atmosphere as well, looking at space physics. Even within the British Antarctic Survey, we cover that entire realm. And if I did all of that this evening, A, we'd not get on to the topic I'm supposed to be talking about, and B, we'd be here for weeks probably. So, blatant plug, um, there are a whole ton of really, really good educational resources available online. The links are at the bottom there that we make available. They're suitable for young children and older kids. Um, all age groups, please um, visit those and you'll discover a heck of a lot more about the variety of science that you can do online. The other blatant plug is if, if you have nothing better to do, um, or even better things to do, on Saturday morning there is an open day at the British Antarctic Survey at our offices out at Baddingham Road. And I think from 11 until 3 during that day, a whole bunch of my colleagues will be there with a range of exhibits and a range of explaining about what the science program involves, what some of the technology that it uses, what we're going to do, and the extent of the operations that are going to be supported. And there'll be a heck of a lot more about Sir David Attenborough, um, top model graphic, and how that is going to be a key part of the science program particularly going forward. And that, I suppose, is the next step for us, is making sure that we are providing the right information to Sophie and the development coordinator. So why is it that ships are so concerned about ice? Why do we need to take as much attention and thought into this? 
So this is a different type of bicycle. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but it just illustrates the point that ice gets in the way of everything. Um, it, it, this is a cruise sheet on a ship, um, and it just freezes onto everything or there's no recourse. And this causes numerous problems. Not only do the winches not work as quickly, it actually adds a considerable weight to the front of the ship, and it can actually affect some damage. So ice in every form causes a problem for shipping. So that's one reason why ships care about ice. The other reason is that they're told to for land-based cruising. Um, the International Maritime um, Organization has recently come up with a whole bunch of rules specific to the polar regions. It's called the Polar Code. It's taken them decades to come up with them, but it tells operators of vessels in the polar regions what they need to do to minimize the risk, what equipment they need to have on board, um, um, uh, how they need to operate. And one of the key strands of that is having good information about stress conditions and other environmental parameters um, available. Of course, it lists things like weather, but you then start thinking about sea ice information in the same context as weather information. You wouldn't head outside on a hiking weekend or any expedition without some good knowledge of the weather that you're going out into. Same applies with ships going into the polar regions. So that's one reason. The other reason, I'll get the phrase, is that sea ice is a bit of a hassle. Um, and this is um, taken from the bridge of one of our ships, the Ever Shackleton. And unsurprisingly, this is sped up because we <laughs> didn't realize that our, our ship's captains are not that haphazard. Um, but it gives you the, the, there's two things to take away from this as well. One, sea ice doesn't get out of the way easily. Hitting it can be fun for the first five minutes, but if you're trying to get anywhere, it really does stop you. And you'll notice that there's this constant kind of hit and see if we can get through, hit and see if we can get through, back up, get away, no, it doesn't work. Right, let's go and try and find somewhere else. Oh, look, there's a bit of open water over there. Let's go and do that. So one, sea ice really, really gets in the way and slows progress. The second thing is it's really hard to get an idea or a good picture of where the sea ice is, and importantly, where these open water leads are whenever you're right down on the surface of the shore. You don't have any elevation. You can go up into the crow's nest if you want, but that only gives you an important part of the water line. Um, if you want to get a decent view, you're not going to do it from the bridge. So those are the two things to take away here. One, sea ice really, really slows progress and, um, and, and gets in the way. And secondly, you're not getting a good view of the ship itself. So what does that mean in terms of slowing down? Well, as with a lot of things, it boils down to money at the end of the day. Marine gas oil, which is what the MGO stands for, and is the main fuel of our ships, is expensive stuff. And you burn a lot of it um, in an average day on a ship. And you burn even more of it if you're trying to work your way through ice. So if you're trying to work through the ice, sea ice unnecessarily, you're burning a hell of a lot of fuel to begin with. You're also wasting time. So if you've got a science program on board and they're keen to get their instruments over the side or they're keen to get to um, whatever location they're going to, if they're even if you're just resupplying a base and trying to get in there to do that, if you're sat in ice, you're wasting time because you're going to end up in a different place and all of it costs. So that was a bit of a back of the envelope cal calculation. But you can see that you can, by choosing good routes, you can save 10K a day just in dollars per person um, just by 
a boiler room for, for, for getting a rad rise from one of them. And that's on top of an average daily operating cost for one of these vessels of about 20,000 pounds sterling a day. So you get the idea of why operating ships is a huge part of our budget, and it's a huge part therefore of Bedford's efficiency. Another reason why sea ice is a problem, um, it's a hazard, it really, really isn't kind to ships. And you don't need to spin back to the time that you find the last time that an iceberg sank a ship. This isn't one of ours, obviously. Um, this is a tourist vessel that sank in 2007, so just over 10 years ago now. And this was an ice flight tourist vessel. And it happened to hit um, um, a small piece of icy ice. Um, but no amongst all this sea ice, um, it went from being permanent to fractured and actually became solid. And that was enough for it to sink. So it's a hazard. You can't underestimate like this. Nice pretty pictures now of this sort of thing, but whether the day before was atrocious or whether the day after was just atrocious, you get a, a ship full of a couple of hundred tourists who um, ironically were on a, um, on a voyage that was entitled to stare at a shackle woman and ended up, <laughs> wait for it, ended up in open wooden lifeboats um, in, the, in the Bransfield Strait, which is up on top of Lake Holland. And we're really lucky. The weather was really good. And within a few hours, some nearby ships, other tourist ships, came in and picked up the ship. But it could have been so much worse. So good information about where the ice is and the risks and awareness of it is really the primary factor in this case. I've been talking about that's a tourist ship. And I'm obviously my main focus is um, providing this sort of information for our two ships. But in doing that, there's no point in just keeping it to ourselves. There's some who are a collaborative and open organization. Um, and therefore, the efforts that we put into this go to the benefit of others as well. It should be a game of strength, basically, isn't it? So it's not just us. In both pools, there's a range of maritime activity that needs to know about this problem. The one could be container shipping moving through ice, and, um, and the other may fight their way down through um, fisheries and other tourist vessels. The Navy, similar, similar relationship between tourist vessels, um, and even private yachts, believe it or not. Um, the large number of them that are in the Yellow River and Sea Ice are running in the same boat. So there's quite a wide audience for the sort of information that we're providing. No polar talk can go along without having pessimism. I'm told. Um, or charismatic megafauna, as somebody from Google once called it, which grated with me somewhat. Um, but the point here is, is that the other part of why sea ice information, keeping ships operating safely um, and efficiently in the polar regions, is the perception of the polar regions being pristine last wilderness. And that really, rightfully so, is a big deal with the wider public. And a large oil spill somewhere in the polar regions is what would create bad feelings, not only for um, all the reasons that we know about because of um, similar spills closer to our shores in England impacting fisheries that are further away, but because it affects, um, affects the wildlife in these areas and dense and such are, are built for that purpose. So I don't put this up lightly. 
um, it's a key reason why this is high profile. And if you don't think it's high profile, it's just a handful of ships at the other end of the other ends of the world, then you may well have missed quite a lot of media attention that's talking about a quite dramatic expansion of activity, especially in the Arctic. The whole shrinking of the Arctic um, sea ice extent has prompted a, um, a, a range of activity of expansion in oil and gas exploration, tourist activity, shipping activity, um, more use of open and open seaways and the Northwest Passage. And there may be some debate about how real that is so far, but it's undoubted that there is a level of pressure on knowing about how much um, sustainable development and another phrase that breaks um, there can be of the Arctic and the heavy impact it's taken. So another reason why making sure that operators in these regions have the right information, the best information available. Um, this is a, a quick map just to illustrate the, the, the extent of activity now in the Arctic. So uh, all vessels more than 500 um, are continuing to have a, a thing that AIS is tracking and their positions um, log done by satellite now so you get these lovely maps of where ships have been and this is I think back in 2011 so a few years out there but you can already see the density of traffic well especially along the Norwegian coast but along the northern sea route the north of Russia along the northwest passage the most recent um, or the last couple of years the most tourist ships have been the northwest passage um, during the summer you can see um, survey grids across North Alaska as well so it's a growing amount of activity and again um, it needs to take account of all the other species so it's it's high profile so sea ice information for ships is not new and it's been provided for decades generally in the form of um, sea ice charts like this um, very brightly colored at times they used to be just black and white um, line drawings and that's primarily because they were delivered directly to ships so this is sort of back to Pollock system. Um, so these are manually interpreted charts um, kind of by expert analysts but decades ago all they were going on were observations from, from the ships um, and then increasingly the aircraft sort of overflew the area. Um, and then more recently, of course, satellite imagery and data got um, helpful. Um, and and these, these are, are great, but to a limited extent. So the problem with them is that they get out of date very quickly. They're not issued for all areas every day. For some areas of high traffic, yes, but not all areas. So it's, um, and, and I should say as well that, that these are the responsibility of national ice centers, so there's a network of national ice centers um, which are mainly established in Arctic um, neighboring countries, um, so Norway, Finland, Sweden, um, um, uh, Canada, Russia, um, the US, etc. Um, and Denmark, Norway and the, and the Norwegians all have a, um, an ice charting capability um, which is um, um, generally part of their their Met Office, their National Met Office. And so it, it's, it's, an, it's a national capability in that respect. There is no indigenous Met Office in the Antarctic. 
Um, so there's nobody that's providing these sort of charity lists um, because they have to, but we're lucky enough that um, uh, there's a collaborative effort to take them into the press and the Russians, they actually take them to the Vladimir Institute and they get the Russian Institute for Charity. Next week, the US Institute for Charity and they keep going like that. Um, so it works rather well. And the Norwegians um, provide some charity lists as well. But as I said, there are limitations to how this can be used on the ship. And it's almost first introduction to our favorite polar weather forecast that Peter gives. It was actually winter in the Antarctic across four continents this week. But it's, it's like watching a weather forecast in the evening and then them told you, like, right, that's it for a week. We're off. And you're not going to get another weather forecast for a week. And they just, it, that, that just wouldn't work for any sort of um, operation. So even any day-to-day -day activity now would be difficult. And it can be even worse than that because if the charts are issued each week, then the data that they're based on are from the preceding week. So you can actually end up with data being interpreted by the analysts for two months previously. So they don't have a great system for keeping the, the ice charts sort of current as they are trading on them. So that's where we bring in Sunrise and the idea that we might be able to extract a bit more information from um, from Sunrise. And I call it a revolution because really we have seen an explosion in the number of satellites that have been um, put into orbit and that the data is available for inspection. Two aspects to this. One, there's a much larger number of satellites. So this graphic is from the European Space Agency and this really is only in Europe in Sunrise. And it's aimed to show that back in 2010, there were just a handful of satellites in orbit um, from Europe anyway, a small number of um, green science missions, a couple of weather um, observing satellites. But then as you come through um, 2010 up to 2020, you've seen this explosion, especially these blue satellites that were deemed for operational volume satellites, provided by the European Copernicus program. Um, Linda mentioned it elsewhere as well, but it's the Copernicus, European Copernicus program, and that's primarily that program's delivery of, um, of satellite data. And you can see that right up to 2030, there's a planned expansion of 20 more satellites, um, 20 satellites. So we've got a huge amount of information that's available, and they're not just sort of science missions, they're operational, they're missions that will deliver and deliver to a schedule and you know when it's going to be delivered and they've got terms and conditions that you can fulfill. It's not just an event that just disappears. So, so that's important. The other really important part about it is that the data is free and open. Um, the European Commission made this decision um, and NASA, yes, it, it made that decision a long time ago, but the European Commission has adopted the same approach. So all of the data for these satellites and the satellites in Sirena were received and then downloaded from the web and um, it has been fully independent since. And that's fantastic because it, it's aimed at underpinning good ideas, new developments, getting it into garages and bedrooms of people that are interested in doing this rather than just big corporate um, scientists. So this is, this is a fantastic change and it has a significant um, impact on what we have accessible or continue to have accessible from the time we deliver them to Chelsea and Cambridge. So, um, uh, and I should mention, of course, that this is just a fraction of these European satellites. So it doesn't include NASA or the US, Japanese satellites, a range of other national space agencies, 
commercial satellites that yes we get and pay for but still are funded through and of course getting through other satellites that uh, don't need to be put on the satellite orbit anymore so there's a whole range of stuff that we can draw on So, the one group of satellites I'm going to concentrate on um, are microwave satellites. If I mention microwaves to you, um, I'm sure this is immediately what comes to mind. So, and they're not a million miles away. Um, but microwaves are used in heat-mapped food movement that are at about S bands, so slightly above this band, and wavelength is about 100 kilohertz. So, these are incredibly useful. They're incredibly useful for meteorological science. Remember that in the polar regions, sometimes, but generally they're heterogeneous and there's no real reason for them to be. So, quick reminder on the electromagnetic spectrum from our shortwave harmful stuff on the left-hand side right the way up to longer wave stuff on the, on the longer wavelength right-hand side um, are the bits that our eyes are able to see as neatly depicted in a rainbow um, strand in the middle there. But the important bit um, or the interesting bit I'm trying to get across to here is the brown stuff and that is depicts what the atmosphere gets in the winter what the atmosphere allows to uh, come in. So quite usefully, on the left-hand side, it stops harmful shortwave stuff. So that's, that's good for us. Um, it lets through light. That's great as well, as you can see. Um, and then it stops other stuff like um, infrared, um, um, uh, infrared um, region spectrum, which is great. keeps us warm, although maybe a bit too warm. Increasingly so, that might not be quite such a good idea. Um, but then there's this big chunk called radio waves, and that's where light curves need to sit. So most light waves um, are bound to sit in this middle. And that's good because these are sort of empty space. And um, and that's sort of the reason for that. So our satellites we want to use and measure in the microwave part of the spectrum are able to get to those regions. So that's what we're trying to get to here. So there's about three different techniques that I'm going to talk to you about that we use to measure various parameters of um, when satellites are being stopped from So, first lot are passive microwaves. So, passive microwaves, everything that's above zero Kelvin emits microwaves. Everything that's at the back end of microwave emission. And satellites are able to pick those up. And um, even from 800 kilometers up, they're able to pick up um, inaccurate examples of microwave emissions in a range of different frequencies across that part of the left-hand spectrum. And we can use that to then convert it to microscopic resolution and use that to distinguish between open border and sea ice. It just so happens that there's a large contrast between open border and sea ice. So that's really useful in terms of being able to provide us with daily observations of sea ice concentration. By sea ice concentration, I mean how much sea ice is above zero centigrade. And it allows us to build up a daily database. And this gives us, allows us to look at how extended the Antarctic spike layer is. The Antarctic spike, it's huge anyway. It's about one and a half to two times the square width. And um, during the winter, it effectively doubles in size. So it's, it's effectively double the area. Then during the summer, most of it disappears. So really mostly it's what's called first-year ice layer loss. So it's just little bits stick around in the Weddell Sea up, up the top left, and other little bits around um, the eastern polar regions. 
and we're able to mention his commitment to this region on Emmett, regardless of um, their right, regardless of whether he issues it. And from that, then we can start building up really interesting information about um, average duration of sea ice in particular areas. And uh, this is useful now to think through um, by colleagues who might be studying the long-term records of sea ice extending north of Emmett, looking at species increases. Um, but it's also um, really relevant when we're planning uh, science for our tourism or our regional supplier effects. And we might want to try and decide, well, where can we get into and what can we get into to increase the sea ice extent? So we're able to do that. But it is interesting then in terms of the trend in sea ice and the trend in um, sea ice concentration in North Britain. So you'll all have heard about um, the Arctic and the fact that the Arctic sea ice extent is um, declining precipitously, particularly in recent several years um, and lots of predictions about a, an ice free Arctic um, during the summer before the next uh, winter comes along. I'm going to bring that into a subsample here. The picture in the, an in the Antarctic is incredibly different. It's entirely baffling in some respects in that the extent of the, um, the Antarctic sea ice looks to actually increase slightly just consistently over the next 50 years in the year constant. So and to be honest, uh, many of you in the end might start to question and say, why is that? I, I think that, and, and I'll point back to my colleagues as well who are very, very close to this debate and think that I don't know. It's some horrible combination of, um, of ocean temperatures and major global cycles and um, changing wind patterns linked to um, um, ongoing pollution and cycling. But when you come to the Polar Regions, you never know. And even this year, there are events that So, baffling situation, but a fascinating one in terms of trying to work out where we might come from. So those are passive um, microwaves. Think of a really calm satellite that's really good at listening when it's orbiting around in space. It's just like a floating around with this going on, not causing anybody any problems. This one, synthetic aperture radar, is what's referred to as an active uh, microwave satellite. This thing shouts and it has a lot more power available to it, and it emits its own pulse of microwave um, radiation and records what comes back. So very much like a bat or um, some other signal that you might um, that, that, that's emitting a pulse of energy and that reports back to you. So you can then determine um, a heck of a lot about the surface um, of um, surfaces of ice in space um, from measuring what comes back um, and that results in the energy that the ice reports and the backscatter and you can think of it largely as a measure of surface properties um, and we're able to build up pictures um, using um, of the surface again doesn't matter whether it's cloudy or not it's in spaceport doesn't matter whether it's in wet cold winter you can see some just as good a picture of bearing as you'll see on the bright side there as you can see of anything that might be wet. The synthetic aperture part of this description is worth noting. So um, the resolution, i.e. the size of the object that a satellite can see on its radar is dependent on um, the beam that 
launching big antennas and things into the into the space program development into that cone bit at the top of the of the rocket where it goes into something like the size of a Tesla car. Then you get a slot of in there and then um, and then unfurls somehow. And it's always the most well second most tense bit of a launch of one of these um, satellites once it gets into orbit is then waiting for the confirmation that everything's unfurled. And so that includes the um, solar panels but then you can just see half of um, the antenna, which is like a big long plank thing, it's like three feet long, and you can see, see the, le the, um, the left hand side of the plank, and that unfurls as well. For some of the newer satellites, like I'm proposing launching, um, they want really, really big antenna to be able to get into the space program. And so they're going, well, how do we fit this sort of size antenna into a rocket that won't launch? Where do they turn? Fantastic idea. But while we're not quite there yet, the antenna length limits the budget. Um, but some clever chap back in the 50s came up with this idea of simulating an antenna, a much longer antenna. That antenna is only two or three feet long. But by clever bit of signal processing using um, the Doppler shift effectively, and therefore being able to listen to the returns just in front of the satellite and just behind the satellite, all that together and create what is effectively a much longer antenna. So the antenna goes from being two or three meters in reality, typically, to being two, three hundred meters long, virtually, by doing what we can conceive of that way. So then you go from having a system that has a resolution of tens of meters to a system that can, even through radar, pinpoint features or identify features on the surface which are which is fantastically useful for a huge range of applications. The military love it, search and rescues love it, um, etc. But we love it as well from a scheduling and cost optimization perspective. And this, this has become the, 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 the bread and butter tool, if you like, of, of real-time information. And this is the sort of picture that gets thrown up. So SAR is synthetic aperture radar. Two or three examples of him. This is from um, Eastman. I will point out that the lab of the Eastman group clear what's, what's land and what's open ocean, what particles are coming into land and what's coming into ocean. But you can see how there's this area of sea ice, like this swirling sort of cloudy patch in the top left, and then this other area down the bottom right. And it does take a bit of time to get your eye in and understand what's what. Um, but once you do, then you get an idea of what's ice, what's land, what's what. And they are fantastic of sea ice, where the sludge flows are, um, where the leads and the bits of open water in the sludge are, and therefore really allow you to start planning for moving through that present shape of the world. Um, this is a um, picture of a bit of um, ice shelf that's broken up um, and the various bits of ice falling off it. Um, these are two islands, and the, uh, the odd black fringe around it is just one of the other indicators of one of the other parameters that affect this strange patch set of the two. That is where it gets slightly, the slower ice gets slightly 
This one's probably, I'll do a little skip this, um, it's, it's more so the main difference. So you can see on the right hand side, this is mostly um, sea ice interior with rock structures, skeletons of rockets fell over, and more so this next year on over. And then as the radar wave hits it, it bounces a little bit back to the center. And then you have side-looking radar sensor that bounces the atmosphere, so you can imagine those little wheels there, bounces back, you get a nice bright return. Um, you also get a bright return off the surface of the top of these big icebergs. So these, um, these two, especially two um, large um, white areas are large tabular icebergs, each of which are a few kilometers. For scale, this is 400 kilometers across. And these blue areas are the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, on the left-hand side, there's Elephant Island, um, where Shackleton's crew spent the winter waiting for him to come back. And just at the bottom of the image there, is where the explorer, sorry, Shackleton's voyage um, sank. So this is the tip of it. So you can see how useful this is in terms of distinguishing where the leads are in the sea ice, how to avoid it, navigate through it, and the distinction between the smooth deformation and the rough deformation. The other bit that shows up really well in this sort of imagery is anything that protrudes or sticks up above ocean surface. And so icebergs, do that wonderfully. They act as brilliant reflectors of, of radar um, and radar pulse that come down the surface. So we end up with a similar radar image like this. This was acquired this morning. And you see all these bright dots around it and then some slightly larger ones. But you get an idea then of how many icebergs there are. You can really pinpoint where they are. You can get some idea of size as well. And we can then convert this into a representation of where the icebergs are. Um, but we can equally um, convert it into an ideal map of the extent of known ice in the icebergs, similar to the way that we used for international ice reporters to do land banks region um, in Newton reporting. And this sort of information is actually used by uh, Vanderwall rock races, and they set dates in the Southern Ocean depending on where the sea is, iceberg distances. So coverages of this radar imagery in the Southern Ocean um, during the period of this was evolved in. And then they will, depending on where the icebergs are observed, they will set the date that the dots are coming depending because the icebergs are right down here, so they'll shift the date based on that. So it's a nice example, aside from pure science of course, um, of, of how this stuff can work um, elsewhere. Icebergs can't go past icebergs without mentioning the, the most recent large um, iceberg that was formed uh, near Leverett's Flat in Leeds um, in the last twenty years. Imagine it looking at cold A sixty eight iceberg. Sorry, I don't come up with a better name for it. It's not us, I promise. Um, but this is a very, very large chunk of the Larsen ice shelf in Norway. Um, and so, throughout the winter, using radar images, we recognise it's possible to be able to measure and monitor the extension of the crack and how this goes back and forth there. And um, we've now got a piece of ice that's not the largest iceberg, but it's the big one in green, but it's very, very small compared to the typical size of whales or the um, uh, other little larger ones about half the size of this ice. Um, 5,800 um, square kilometers. And, uh, and now on the move, so 
hair goes into head goes. Uh, I know roughly where it would go. Um, my betting is it's just a bit stuck elsewhere than it is in the vertebra. Uh, but my colleagues recently have just tried to get down in behind it uh, and make this a fantastic instrument that can go looking underneath elsewhere. It's got really dark colored eyes and hundreds of ears. And uh, it's purple and white and black and orange and green. So um, it's a one-off instrument that delights very much. But very importantly, we've got one of the more spiciest packed in around Not really much information to write about it, but in delivering this sort of information, this is the sort of genius behind it uh, that we need. Not to avoid being negative, but just to make it so we get a lot of this sort of information. We get a lot of these images. We get about 200 to 300 of them a day. They arrive within one or two hours of being acquired. They get sensitized up, and then we're able to do what the heck we want with them. Um, and we turn them into a lot of useful information. So the imagery itself is useful, that's great. Um, but then we can um, get some idea about how much they overlap and how much they diverge. Um, this is an example um, from uh, North Greenland. Uh, the repeat of the image in, in this area is so frequently reflected that it doesn't scare you. This is a very, very narrow channel down inside of Greenland. We have a narrow strait. It's one of the few exit points for Arctic sea ice. Um, other than the main route down the Greenland channel and down the strait. And you can see how the ice builds up over this chain of mountains that eventually build these fractures in the channel. But the previously that sort of channel that sort of communication was sort of invisible because we didn't have the sort of fine uh, detail of the imagery to be able to see it. But given that we've got the pink, then one of the really useful bits of information we can turn the nonsense of repeated imagery into is an idea of where the sea ice was drifting. So it's one thing knowing where the sea ice is. But then if we can use positive automatic techniques to match images from one day to the next, to match features in the images using uh, camera recognition uh, methods that we ourselves have built, to then track those features and build up these maps of where the sea ice drifts, we get a sea ice grid. But one step further than that, and, um, and, and this is probably then the, the most important bit of information, is to turn that drift information from one spatial derivative of that, then a sort of Reisner's decompression, which is then a further divergent form. So if you can imagine back to that time lapse of the ship bashing at the air, getting to the sea ice, and you kind of get to it um, with a camera, and you're staring out at that, and you have no idea if you're looking at it, whether that sea ice is one of the things pressing together or whether it's moving up and down. If you can plan your route, along the areas that are commonly on that ice that's moving a bit divergent and moving apart from the pink, that's the sort of convergent moving convergent, then um, then it, that, that's much better chance of um, predicting the drift. Um, the other parameter that, um, that we uh, are, are very keen on is, is the thickness of the ice. So, so far I've just been talking about the extent and the structure of the sea ice, but the thickness of the ice is, is hugely important. Unfortunately, at the moment, this is one of the areas from an operational point of view where we're slightly limited. So the methods to be able to derive um, ice thickness from uh, 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 from satellite and to be made an altimetry are fairly well established. We use about 18 now on Titan. Um, so the method uses a radar altimeter. So again, a satellite of a thousand plus of uh, radar um, um, 
creation and then return the measures that are turned. And it's measuring therefore the height of the load somewhere very, very accurately. And we're measuring it so accurately that we can determine that height of a sphere. See how high the uh, sticks up above the other stuff is really sort of what we're doing here. So we can determine which of the returns from the um, surface are coming off the icy clothes. They have a um, diffuse return that we call F dot. And we can also determine which returns are coming off the organic uh, carbon itself. So, so if we can distinguish between those two and difference them, then we can measure what the height of the ice sticking up above the ocean is. And that's only in some cases of tens of centimeters or centimeters. So from 800 kilometers up, measuring the height difference is 10 centimeters, and then turning it into a thickness measurement by uh, making some assumptions and measurements of the density of the of the ice, thicknesses of it, etc. Um, for it to be that, and, and, and that's a well-established and valid way of doing it. The problem with it is that it gives um, in, it gives data along narrow lines in a given surface. So it's a single line, like a rectangle, but a single line. So it takes days to build up a complete picture like this and to get a map of the spectrum. So for now, this is really useful in sort of complex applications where you need to do long-term measurements of um, uh, spec thickness and how it's changing. Um, but from an operational point of view, it, um, it, it means um, uh, it gives the data to be densified so that there's not a need to come up with a lot of information on the fly. There are complications with it and other methods as well. These things are called melt quantum hubble scale spectrometers. They're called multi-hubble scale spectrometers, basically. So in effect, our altimeter method and the methods using passive microwave are also available to measure spec thickness, get confused by melt times. So they're useful during the winter, not during the summer. Um, some are useful for thinners, some are useful for thicker. And you can get combined products then, but generally at the moment, they're quite common and quite effective. Right, I'm getting towards the end now. Um, comment on CRT for a second. So second return of Mr. Gibbs. Um, so far, you'll all have noticed that all of the data and the information that I'm talking about that we can get from the ships is old. It's all, it may only be an hour or two old, but it's old. It's, it's, it's gone. We told you about what conditions were um, three days ago or two days ago. And again, if you were looking at your weather forecast on the TV and that's what they were telling you, I'm guessing by now you would be rather disappointed, um, especially if we then went on to say, and I'll see you in a week's time. So the idea is that we need to be able to forecast these kinds of conditions. And that's in a relatively early stage. It's certainly much more advanced than the Arctic, where they can have much more valid observations at night. Uh, investigation is more popular modeling is more required for that. But it's advancing quickly, and we now can um, get more parameters. Uh, and this is all good uh, for us to be getting more parameters on various parameters out of um, modules that now have a um, SCRT capability. Give us a forecast for a few days of um, climate change and prediction of this, and even the conversion of radiation um, from the surface of the Dark Worlds itself. Lastly, and this brings us back down to Earth just about, um, we are trying to provide as much good information to the ships as possible, and a huge amount of that comes from satellites, and um, that is a strand of our aerial network as well that we're looking at. But the other strand that we've been looking into almost as a, um, let's say, curiosity experiment 
this. How the heck do you get a bee that's not just that lactose that makes pure lactose? And so we thought, well, small amount of investment. You can start for everybody's use, for every application you can put it to, uh, using small grains. And we are talking small, small grains. Bamtra was cheaper just to export because we were convinced we were going to have thousands of bamtra flowers. And then that was convincing to all our colleagues that we were going to have thousands of bamtras to export to Britain. So, but we haven't lost one yet. Um, and they proved remarkably useful. And purely because they give this fantastic view directly overhead the ship, and then as you look up, what you see is the bee. And the virtual crane's nest is completely irradiated by this up above you. And they get to see perfect view. So we now have, this is part of routine operations uh, on the ship, captain picking the bees up uh, that they get ready to fly. Um, then can go, can go and do a quick crane's dive. What's now a routine of taking this out it off the back deck, it's up, there's a couple of rotations, it comes back down, and they then go and pick it up by the hand. So the gills are almost like a computer here, processing that quite a bit, and doing it off the back of the equipment. So you can see the detail, you can see the, the advantage that that gives, and then tying this in with the work that we have done uh, to understand the structures that just fit right off the horizon and sort of create a branch of this and then flip back down and land again in these pages. Um, and yeah, so this is just a, a quick view of the whole side here. This is just from flying from the back of the hold deck to the stop and back again. Um, Werner Shackleton boarding a large crane. Um, Lastly, um, a quick point. I keep saying that we're providing all of this information, this imagery, and this data. We do. That's available. And if you want to, please feel free. So look at the um, URL, the bottom right. Kilogy.ag is the BAG website that came out then. Um, there was a version for the Antarctic. This is, and there's a version for the Arctic as well. And you can go and see and download for yourself to all of the radar imagery. Each one of those green squares is a radar imagery. Central one of which you can see is the ice concentration data, which you can see in the purple thing, and a range of other information on how to make your own. You too can look at ice slice and change for that A68 voyages sort of thing of all these useful things that we have um, everywhere else. And there are large numbers of people that look at this, large numbers of people that um, will find it very useful for a whole range of things. It does occasionally lead to a slight odd publications like the uh, Thing Holder that have years of data and accuse me of using microwave radiation to make things like gloves and to melt the um, polar ice caps. <laughs> um, and that it was no coincidence that the climate change story had come up just as we were starting to prepare for that catastrophe. Anyway, I will end there. Happy to answer questions. Thank you very much. Does uh, salinity vary across the vast area, and can you measure it, and is it significant? Yes. Um, so how significant, I, I, I don't know. Um, not my area. But this sea ice thickness chart, um, which is probably 
combination of two top players here, I think the set construction from Tottenham Hotspur is pretty good. Let's just have a look at the stats. So we've got Sane, Oxford, Alcon, Tiago, Saka. And um, I did finally eventually get to see the highlights of Mane turning it up in the regulation. Not really surprised. Hello. Yes, there was a question just recurring over and over again in my mind while you were talking. Um, has any of this technology been applied to deep space exploration of, of other planets in the solar system, in especially things like the, the virtual aerial technology? Because that would seem to be a very efficient way of, of mapping another planet. So the, the easy answer is yes. And in fact, they, they, they beat us to it. Earth-wise, because Venus was a, was a symbolic avatar radar mission, radar mission, and that's how they mapped uh, Venus. And the icy moons uh, um, are equally important, uh, have been over a period of time, and so forth. And so it's absolutely up to us. So, okay, as a very quick but linked follow-up, was the Cassini probe uh, equipped with any of the, the kind of earlier versions, if you will, of so this technology? I'm not familiar with what suite of instrumentation was on Cassini, although a postdoc that was working with me, for example, used to came fr come from um, a team that had investigated the Earth planets. That's spectral data there. Uh, he was supporting his spectral uh, analysis techniques. So it's, it's different, um, similar techniques, different realms, different applications. So not directly analogous yet. Because it, it, it just occurred to me that the virtual aerial concept stroke technology would be a very efficient way of kind of maximizing data capture with limited resources and space on a deep space probe. Absolutely. That's why I mentioned it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no other way of doing it really. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Has there been any work on applying artificial intelligence to doing that a bit faster since you seem to have so much back data. Yeah, so, so um, yes and no. Two, two big, not enough yet, um, but one development idea is to do a lot more ice channeling using artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is a lot of data and um, how do you go about actually assimilating all of that and then uh, making lots of parts of it. So that's an avenue The other example is the classic uh, Elon Musk one, which is the standard method of identification um, in education has been so successful, something like successful at getting a high rate of success or something, getting, getting a classification, racial classification that everybody gets. Um, but a, not only that's somebody solutions to problems. So a problem has come up, here's some data on the kid, go and see how if you can develop an ice channel that actually gets there. And uh, they did, they got, they got quite good. And they put up a flag and it turned out that actually they got um, And they're talking about getting more data and more data and getting interesting, dynamic data. So yeah, and um, they, 
winning result, which seems to have uh, been the result, it seems to have been that that is using some uh, AI to get there. And they recognize that just because right, they probably got a combined investment development value of about four million. And that's from people that were just interested and just wanted to try. And that's that's what the AI was doing. They were thinking like, okay, we can develop this AI. 